Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. This week on the show, we have Andrew Russell, also known as Jack, the high-performance manager of the Carlton Football Club. After graduating, Andrew obtained his first major sporting role as an assistant conditioning coach at the Essendon Football Club. The club won the premiership in year 2000, and Jack was headhunted to Port Adelaide Football Club, a rival club at the time. He took up the head role of head of fitness of the Port Adelaide Football Club and contributed to Port Adelaide winning a premiership in 2004. Jack later moved back to Victoria to the Hawthorne Football Club as high performance manager. He has constantly undertaken professional development to improve his effectiveness and to date has been involved in six AFL premierships. Jack leads by example undertaking his own endurance running training, which has allowed him to compete at events such as the Storwell Gift. Jack also coached Jeff Risley and accomplished Australian middle distance runner to the World Championship 800 metre semi-final and a fifth place at the Commonwealth Games. Before we start episode 42, the Prepare Like a Pro podcast mission is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please support us by following us on Instagram and subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. Thanks for jumping on, everyone. I will get Jack on here now, just sending the invite over. Bear with me. Boom. There we are. Andrew Russell is joined. I've just sent the invite over. Jack should come over pretty soon. If you're with us, guys, just you can send through a question for Jack as well. We'll do a Q&A at the end. Hit the question button at the bottom of your screen and type your questions in there. There we go. Yeah, got you. I'm good, mate. Going well. You're rolling well. with the power beats as well? Yeah. We'll dive straight in, mate. Take us back to the beginning. At what age did you realise you had a passion for, for strength and conditioning? Yeah, look, it feels like a long time ago now. Been on this for a while. I grew up as an athlete, loved it. I was very fortunate. I got to train with some amazing athletes, Steve Monaghetti being one of those. For those who can remember him, one of Australia's best marathoners. I just I, I lived and breathed athletics, footy, swimming, triathlon. Basically, I did a lot of different sports. And then, really, there was only one path I was going to go down, and that was to work in sport in some capacity. I, I, I did a sports science degree. I loved it. I thought I was going to be a sports scientist. I wanted to know the physiology inside out, how do humans work from a physiology point of view. I must admit I got involved in that. I worked at the Victorian Institute of Sport. I got a sports science traineeship for a year back in the day at uni. Amazing. There was two people who applied for that sports science traineeship out of the whole degree, which is, just blows my mind. Anyway, that, was, that opened so many doors for me. So then I started working in strength and conditioning because I got a bit disillusioned with the physiology testing side of things. Mm-hmm. I I, there was something about it. I, I didn't, I, there was value, but I, I didn't see that that was going to be my role. So I went down the strength conditioning path. At the Victorian was that Institute. like being, being in a lab element of it? Opposed yeah, to well, both the lab and the field, I did both. But to me, I, even the field testing, it's just like, well, every single day is a test when you're in the field. Yeah. You really should know your athletes by watching them train every day. That tells you how well they're going, not, not, a, not a physiology test. Mm. And there's value. There's value, but I didn't see that there was enough value for me to really stimulate me. So strength and conditioning, and I was very fortunate. I got some amazing opportunities early. I was trying to shoot a sport, which had a very forward-thinking, you know, proactive approach. They were, you know, probably ahead of their time in many ways. A lot of the you learn game better and those type of philosophies at that stage in the early late 90s, early 2000s. A lot of functional training really going away from the traditional model at that stage. Yeah. Yep. Loved it. You know, some great is Vernon Australian, is he? 
No, no, well, he, no he's, he's not Australian, but a lot of his methodologies we were, we were sort of jumping into and using. His yeah. methodology and the way that he thought about things. And then we had two people at the VIS, Vern McMillan and Mark McGrath, who were driving the program. Fantastic mentors for me. And then I just got, a, I got an, I ran the draft camp late 90s for the AFL through the VIS. Again, it was physiology testing that got me, that got me into it. And then I just got some, I worked at Essendon. I got a job because the guy had a shoulder reconstruction at the time, Loris Bertolacci, who was one of my very early mentors, who's a great man very very good at what he did learn a lot of him and then i was fortunate enough to get to go to melbourne storm speed coach at melbourne storm for a while and then i got full-time job at essendon and i was just very fortunate to be honest that was the start of professional full-time coaching and strength and conditioning yep. really and a lot of people at that stage were being resourced from the institute system and they were being sucked out of the institute system into your professional coach football rugby soccer um, a lot of people came out of those systems it's a little bit a little bit different now but, yeah. yeah, unbelievable opportunity. And then Essendon opened up my doors because they were a very good football side. It wasn't because I was any good at what I did. It was because they were a great football side and I happened to be there at the time, played my role. I was involved in strength and conditioning. I was involved in the rehab, worked closely with John Quinn, who came on board after Loris. John Quinn is a fantastic sprint coach, uh, strength and conditioning um, coach, high-performance manager that was in the AFL, went up to the GW uh, Giants and he's still coaching some elite sprinters. Um, now, so I've yeah. been fortunate to work with some great people. But then I got an opportunity at Port Adelaide. Port Adelaide approached me to work with them and run the high performance program. I was 23 years of age. It's pretty young for high performance, manager. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, there was a lot I didn't know, but I just thought it was such an unbelievable opportunity that I just I jumped into it. And I think, I, you know, I did a presentation the other day. I was talking to a group of people and they're just saying, well, how did you, how did you? That was a big risk. It's just like, well, you never really know whether you're ready. As in, if, if you fail, your career's takes a hit. Anytime you put yourself into one of these positions, if it doesn't go well, perform your part of that. Now, you're mm. only part of that. We all play our role, you know, within this. And, and I guess you're honest, at Essendon as well, like you just won a premiership. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I, I look back now and I think it was risky at the time. It was a no-brainer. I actually didn't think it was that risky at all. So, but I went to Adelaide and never been to Adelaide. I didn't know one person. I didn't know anyone at the footy club. I was very raw in AFL football. I was, it was extremely raw. But in some ways, that actually helped me because I didn't have any, you know, preconceived ideas about what it was, what it needed to be. I, I worked, I used some of Loris's philosophy, some of John Quinn's philosophy, some of the, the Mark McGrath and Vermont Millen, the IS, my own middle distance running. I was a middle distance runner, so my own middle distance runner philosophies. And I sort of pulled it all together and came up with my own, my own little cocktail, I suppose, and then put it to work. Uh, I was pretty fortunate at that stage. Port Adelaide had an unbelievable list. They were on the bottom of the. They were on the bottom of the ladder when I got there. Oh um, right! Wow. They, interestingly, they. So that was two thousand and one or two thousand two that you started there. Two thousand one, so the end of two thousand. Yeah. And yep. interestingly, when you go into a new environment, it's so important that you understand what the work they have done in the previous two to three years to know what and how they've been trained. They were trained very aerobically, so. Yeah, that Jason was different. We, we had John Quinn on and he said how much anaerobic sort of sprints, hills, power cleans, that type of stuff that you guys were doing with them. Well, yeah, Essendon was exactly the – they were a speed, power, repeat speed program. Yeah. And, to be, and so to be honest, what I did is I did something in the middle. Yeah. I, I grabbed elements of what Quinny was doing and I kept elements of what they were doing. So the volumes were very high. But we did a real – I was lucky that I had the ability to, you know, both Mark Williams and Phil Walsh at that time supported me unbelievably. They were just – for a young man, they really did back me in. And Their relationship always, before the role or you guys met? No, well, they, no, I'd never met it before. So, no, I didn't know okay. at all. But they backed me in 
which would never have worked unless they did. We did a heavy conditioning program and less football. And what we did was crazy. Like, I, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Compared to the loads we do now, I can't believe. We pushed the envelope. Why. Yeah. And we, what, we what would be an ex- example? Like, is it what? Did you have well, GPS back then? Yeah, we did at the start. But I'd, yeah. I'd give you an example of a week. So, Monday morning, we would do a track repeat speed session. So, something on the lines of 3x3x150, 3x4x150, anywhere between 10 and 15 150s, but fast. Yeah. Like 23 uh, seconds, sort of. No, no, no. We're talking 18, 19, 20, 21. Like oh, fast. Right. Like going hard. And what rest are they getting to repeat those? Anywhere from a minute to 90 seconds. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. might just say three by three, 90 seconds, you know, four minutes, which is a real John Quinn session from Essendon. We then do light skills and strength in the afternoon. Uh, then Tuesday morning, all the midfielders would do a recovery run, 25, 30-minute easy run. We'd do a cross-training circuit. We'd then go and do some light footy skills. Then Tuesday afternoon, we'd do a footy session. All right, so wow. uh, then at one stage, I got all our midfielders in and we did a touch footy. We played a, a local touch footy competition on Tuesday night, so which was a bit of fun, but they were working really hard. So you got your Stuart Jews, your Josh Franco, Roger James, Josh Carr, Burgoynes, these guys, good players. Yeah. yeah. Wednesday morning, with our, we did a cross, we did, sorry, we did a session like a hill, a hill run into medicine ball, into fartlek type session, like a real, what I call aerobic transfer session. No balls. Yeah, so it's off, um, yeah, off the club, away from the club. Out, out, away from the club, but yep. heavy, big volume, 10, 12K sort of plus type session. Wednesday afternoon, we do yoga, wrestling type session. Thursdays off. Friday morning, we did speed and skills. Friday afternoon was total body strength. And then Saturday morning, we would belt out a 12 to 15K running session. And then the guys yeah. that were not in good shape, we'd then go and do a hill ride after it into the Adelaide Hills where we might ride an hour, an hour and a half, two hours sometimes. So sometimes Saturday morning yeah. I'd, get, and I'd, get home at a, I'd get home at lunchtime and literally the whole session was just physiology. Sunday off, now that's big for a footy yeah, player. Yeah. That's big. And so what happened was 60 to 70% of them flourished and were absolutely flying and 30 to, you know, 30% were no good at all. I couldn't handle it. It broke down. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot of groin injuries. We had a lot of groin overload, which is not surprising. So, and the 60, 70% that it worked for, like their performance as well, like footy, they were fit testing-wise, but also their footy, they felt in good shape and well-prepared. They were well-prepared. And we were, we, were, we were a really hard-running side. We had the Brisbane Lions at that same time that were very, very good. And interestingly, we won more games during that four-year period, but Brisbane won three premierships and we won one. The important you know, we, finished, we finished on top of the ladder three years in a row. Yeah, we didn't. We couldn't get the job done. Brisbane were a big, strong, tough, physical side. We were this running side. That's just yep. sort of what we had at our disposal. We also had some tough guys. Don't don't worry about that. But very, very different. Very, very different. So yeah. So interestingly, the, the, I was there for four years. The lowest load was the fourth year. The year we actually won it was the lowest load. So I actually pulled the loads back and pulled the loads back in season and yep. had the lowest load of my whole time there. So then and do you think that, that those three years sort of built them up at the same time? Like obviously broke some boys down, but then when you bring back down the loads, the intensity, maybe the quality, and their capacity for the ones that survived that high volume, or do you just simply think that was a better system that 2004? And if you had your time again, you would have done that it's in 2002. It's probably a bit of both. You know? But we, we played around the whole lot. We did a real power program. We did a speed power program. We did a heavy strength, heavy sort of traditional lifting program. And then we went with a more functional program. And again, the more yep. functional spring program at that time was the one that was most effective. And then I took that type of approach to Hawthorne, which at that time, a lot of teams were doing big, heavy lifting and they were looking to get stronger and heavier. I went mm-hmm. the other way. I was looking to get um, more efficient, leaner bodies, 
for the ground, recover well, game to game, and do a more of a functional sort of strength program. And that held up pretty well in those days. Yeah. And how individualised were the programs back then? No, they were individualised. They were really individualised. Yeah. Yeah. And did no. you have a team of su- support? Like, obviously, there's a fair bit of support nowadays, well, before COVID, but what was what was your team like? What was your performance team like? At yeah, well, no, I started pretty much programming everything. I was doing the strength programs, the your Pilates programs, your running programs, your skills programs, your psychology stuff. You know, I did a grad dip in psych at that time because I thought that was a real area of advantage for me that a lot of people yeah. were doing PhDs and postgrads, very specific to one area. And I thought, to me, I thought, great, have a lot of respect for people that do that. But for me and my style was I wanted to know what was going on between people's ears and combine the physiology with psychology. I thought that was where the goal was. Went down and that, that, that was... You discovered that on the job that you realised that that would be something that was sort of an untapped resource to have the psychology or that something yeah, that you always were working no, towards. I always, no, I always knew that the mind was going to be the difference, and but I thought I should get some formal training in that area to match what my match my experience of how important the mind was. Yep. You know, so that's what I did, and then which would have been hard to fit that in with everything you were doing on the job. I had a. My wife Lee, she's she's unbelievable. I think she's she, she's logged on, I think. Oh, she logged on. I didn't even yeah, tell her. She's very good on my <laughs> social media. She's very good. Didn't have kids at that stage, so that makes a fair difference, doesn't it? I, I pushed the envelope. I went hard early days. I was completely obsessed. My attitude was, if I fail, I'm going down swinging. I'm not. No one's going to be critical of me. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put myself in as many different environments as I can. Back in those days, SNFL was on the weekend, and we'd have all our teams farmed out over the weekend and I'd try and do it for every single game that our players are playing if they weren't playing the first report. I'd Even if I was there for 20 minutes, just to show them a face, show them that I cared about them, and then I'd drive to the next round. And then I'd go there and watch a quarter or a half. Sometimes you go to three different games in one afternoon or then you go in the afternoon and go that night. So, But when you can do these things when you're younger. Mm. It's a bit hard. And did that come, is that your style or you learned that from Loris and Josh or a coach or someone like that's influenced your career or is that just your... I've gone about it. No, that's my style. My style is, well, I think through experience and through learning from others, the coaches that really dive into their athletes and show that they care about them get a better result. You could be the best technician in the world, but if they don't think that you really care about them and you really dive into their life, not just how they squat and clean and all that, you get a better result. They have to think that you're with, because as I said, there's a lot of people that are fantastic technically, but they need to dive yep. into their hearts and their minds and really get to know them. There's nothing better than just showing up and being there. You don't have to do anything other than just be there and show them that you're thinking about them. Then you can have discussions with them during the week about, I was there, I saw you, I, I saw you, I saw how you came out of the ground, I saw you were struggling at the 10-minute mark, what was going on? It's like, shit, this guy's actually taken all this in. He's thinking about what happened at the 10-minute mark. Oh, like yeah. He's watching me. That's where the gold is. That's, that allows you to connect to get him to squat better, clean better, lift better, run better. But, and that's and how much of the postgrad, yeah? How much the postgrad degree bring that on, or or is that something you learnt being an athlete yourself, with coaches that coached you? Oh, the postgrad those, those reference points. It gave me a framework. It gave me more credibility to have the discussions yeah. that this yeah. guy's studying this, he's thinking about it. He's so, yeah. I, I'm better for doing that, but I think that I had a little bit of it anyway. I just I, I was I grew up with it. My experiences, you know, were very good, and I had a good understanding early of how important that was. And then that just added to it. So it was very important. Yeah, and, and so Port, so you win the, the, the premiership in 2004, and then what happened after that year? Well, I went to I went to Hawthorne, and so 
Lee, myself and my young fella Finn, who was sort of only six months old, we, we went back to Melbourne. We were from Melbourne, so that was a really tough decision. We just won a premiership with a team and then to leave. Yeah, I, which for the second know. time too, Essendon and, and then Port. Yeah, but it, look, it ended up being a great decision. I love my time at Hawthorne and... And, and it, is, it is one thing that the really good coaches, and go back to what we were talking about before, one of the really, the really good coaches do is they're very good at connecting with their players and they're very good at showing that it, that it matters so much more than just the training. So one of Alistair Clarkson's great attributes is his ability to really dive into players' lives and yep. challenge them about the way they live their life, support them about the way they live their life and just deal with, deal with issues quickly as hard as it may be, just really dive in there and and get to know them and really work out how to push their buttons. He's a great example. He would travel anywhere and everywhere. I remember early days, you know, we're at Port Adelaide and we'd travel for an interstate game. I'm, I'm on the Gold Coast today. We're playing. I remember he, as assistant coach, I'd say, what are you doing, mate? What are you doing today? He'd say, oh, I'm going to catch up with Ricky Ponting. Yeah. I just want to catch up with him and learn something off him. The ability to just learn off the best and really good operators do yeah. that they've got a they've almost got a child's mind of just teach me show me what i don't know because we're we're all learning the whole time that curiosity i find today is challenging yeah. as 20 years ago i i thought i knew a lot i realized now i didn't know much at all and i feel as dumb as i've ever felt I feel like i still think that i'm miles off knowing what i really yeah, well, know. Um, that's crazy yeah and, and because of that trait that the hunger to learn more and that curiosity to like you said be like a child and just keep discovering I guess the more information you have there, the more you realise you don't know, don't you? In these all these different elements of performance. Yeah, well, if you think about how complex the human body and mind is, how many mm. things are at play, and, and even when that one athlete and how they respond to a certain stress next time, they respond differently to that same stress. So you thought they went well that session, yet because they've broken up with their girlfriend, they've got financial issues, they've got something going on, all of a sudden they have a completely different response to that session based on what's going on outside their life. So that's where this you cannot have this... If you're an athlete, your, your whole life is important. Everything mm. you do affects your ability to train, your ability to recover, your ability to be consistent. You you have to be able to compartmentalise unbelievably well. The good athletes can have stuff going on in their life. They can put it to the side, come to training and say, that stuff doesn't matter for the next two hours. I'm just really going to dive in to my training session like that other part of my life doesn't exist. Then as soon mm. as they finish the training session, they say, all right, I've done can't do any better than that. That's what I had today. It's either a great session, a good session, or a shit session. But guess what? I'm moving on. I'm now going back to deal with whatever's going on in my life. And then that becomes the really important part. Now, that sounds so easy. It sounds simple. But mm. not many people have the ability to be able to do that in their life. Like genuinely being here and now in the moment, do what you've got to do now and then move on to the next moment. We all we, we see the theory. We understand it. Yet mm. executing it is a different thing. Yeah, yeah, particularly in this world with technology and phones and all the rest of it, the distractions, it is yeah incredibly hard to do. You mentioned Clarko was big on dealing with things you need to deal with then and there. For developing footballers out there, like or anyone like watching this, what would be some ways that you can help with that focus and and knowing what's important that you need to uh, dive into at that time in your life? Well, probably before we go there, we're talking about stress. One of the biggest forms of stress is ruminating, as in. So worrying about what's just happened. And the longer we ruminate and the longer we worry, the greater stress response, the greater stress hormones that are released. So if you're going through any stress in your life and the stress might be related to your sport, it might be related to your life, the ability to actually try and deal with that situation is what's important. You may not actually solve it, but you, but the fact that you've had a crack at solving it means that 
your mind can move on and those stress hormones, they basically, they lower. They go, you know, they go lower. So it's really important. That's why you want to deal with things really quickly. So things like before you go to sleep, obviously sleep's so important. So a lot of us ruminate when we go to bed. We think about what happened that day, what happened that week, and then we worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. And the ability mm. to get that out of your head, you know, basic strategies like just writing it down, writing it, putting it in your phone, writing it down beside your bed, whatever is in your head, try and get it out of your head. I need, right. to, I need to talk to my girlfriend and deal with this. I need to go to the bank and work out that. Whatever it is, try and deal with it quickly, succinctly, and then move on, even if it's a bad outcome. But that helps you compartmentalise it, like you said, by writing it down. You're then taking it out of your head sort of figuratively and you're putting it down to, to deal with it the next day opposed to just doing you know, You can't deal with it then and there when you're trying to go to sleep. That makes a lot of sense. No, and, and even the ability like the self-talk, the ability to say, Literally sitting there and saying to yourself in your mind, I can't do anything about this right now. I cannot deal with this situation right now. So why would I let it affect my ability to go mm. to bed and sleep? Let's wake up tomorrow. And tomorrow, these are my three things I'm going to achieve tomorrow. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And I'm not satisfied until I do all three of them. As hard and as difficult as they may be, get it done. Start early, get it done, move on. And then those difficult dis- discussions I had, your mind can free itself and then move on to whatever needs to move on to next but like you said it's simple but but yeah challenging to, to apply not easy to apply that's fantastic for anyone yeah to listen to and, and practice that yeah, and what about what are some other focuses for developing footballers that that you try and install when you're going on to a new club or, or currently at a club what are some key areas you mentioned stress in the mind game yeah. um, that you work on with with young developing footballers well i think one of the really important things is understanding what their daily habits are so their yep. daily habits are what we do without thinking about it. And there's some great stats out there. It basically says 90 to 95% of our day, our subconscious is driving what we do. We do not even think about what we do. We just do it because we did it yesterday, we did it the day before, and there's not actually a lot of conscious thought that goes into our life. And a great example of a, you know, a great example of your habits are the way you brush your teeth. You, we always brush our teeth to the right or left, the way we go, the way we go to the toilet, the way we wipe our ass, like whatever it is. You know what I mean? You're a scruncher, you're a folder, yeah. you're a whatever. Yeah. But what it's you do automatic it's the way we it's the way we eat our food the way we use our utensils the way that we wash up after dinner we just have habits and if you watch the way mm. the players play the game they play their way every week so you watch patrick mm. play tonight he plays the same way the same habits the same movement every single week he doesn't even know why he does it that's just what he's built up over the years and that's what he does so sometimes the opposition actually know what you do better than what you do because yeah, it's actually in your subconscious so mm. Firstly, what I do with these young boys is saying, what are your ha- what are your daily habits? So, I mean, what time do you get up? Consistent, consi- you know, getting up within the same hour every day. One of the most important things we can do is our sleep is get up within the same hour and go to bed within an hour every night. If you just did that one thing over your whole life, you are going to have a lot more energy and live a you know, much more highly functioning life if you can do that. Again, hard. what do you have for breakfast? How consistent is it? When do you have it? And then, so, so your eating habits are really important. Your sleeping habits are really important. Your rest habits are really important. Your social habits are really important. Your training habits are really important. So all those, and because a lot of them don't know what they are, bring them to life, talk them about it, and they think, shit, I didn't even know I did that. That's amazing. Mm. Some of these habits we want to hold on to and some of these habits we want to change. Now, the really good players like Sam Walsh comes into our system at Carlton. He's not playing good footy because he's number one draft pick. He's playing good footy because he's got unbelievably good life habits and he's had them for a long time he's had them because his mum and dad taught him some of it's ingrained in him he's had some really good mentors so his habits were elite he comes in and he's one of the best trainers i've ever seen he's his training habits 
he just did everything flat out. He did everything flat out. And so he made all our habits, a lot of our guys, better because they're just like, shit, how well does this guy train? And then they saw him after yeah. training. They saw the way that he what he ate, what he drank, how he recovered, his mindset, how tough he is mentally. Like he's a genuinely hard, tough human being. That's got nothing to do. He, he obviously has talent, but he's taken his talent to another level because he's worked really hard and he's identified what he wants to be. The, the hard thing with these young guys is a lot of the habits that are poor habits you have to actually, like the brain, the way the brain works is you have to unwire those habits to then rewire new ones. So yeah. the guys that come in that are young, naive, and don't have many good or bad habits are actually really good to work with. Now, obviously, you want the guys with really elite habits, but the next layer is you want guys that haven't got strong habits because you can then work with them to develop really strong habits. The hardest players or the hardest athletes to work with are the ones that have got these really strong negative habits because to change yeah. it, you need to put a lot of thought, a lot of passion a lot of practice a lot of energy to actually change any habit so just think about think about any habit so think about brushing your teeth how much time it would take for you Mental to energy, swap yeah. your right hand to your left hand to be as good as your right hand like do it every day you have to do it every day you'd have to do it four times a day you'd have to do it you'd have to think about it you've got to think am i going left am i right am i getting the balance right and am i hitting all the different areas i need to hit yeah. like so you can actually unwire the right to then rewire the left and and that's the way the brain works when we when we develop a new habit we basically are plugging in a new neural pathway and that neural pathway becomes more sophisticated and higher and much more powerful the more the more you do it that's the old 10,000 hours there's, there's a bit of skepticism around 10,000 hours to become an expert it doesn't really matter what the number is you have to do a lot of something mm. to be very good at it and you don't just have to do a lot physically you have to do a lot mentally so the brain doesn't know the difference between doing something physically and thinking about it. So if you're goal kicking, that neural pathway to your brain doesn't actually know whether you're physically goal kicking or whether you're lying in your bed thinking about goal kicking. The same neural pathway is firing up and you're developing that neural pathway. It could be in your bed or it could be kicking. Now, obviously, the goal is when you do both. And the goal is to connect the neural pathway with, you know, Physical muscles, task, yeah. the rhythm, all that. I mean, that's, that's the gold standard. But you can still get better. And there's so much stuff now around imagery, on the power of imagery. Yeah. You know, and it, the good athletes do it and they do it particularly well. Some of them are just born that way and they know how to do it. Some of them have trained themselves to do it. But the best athletes, they imagine themselves doing it well. They imagine themselves not doing it well and their response. So it's not just about imagery or visualisation about showing the good stuff. It might be you're a runner mm. and you're in a race and you, and you think you should be in the lead, but you end up being fifth at the bell. Prepare to be fifth at the bell and how are you going to deal with it? So you don't shit the bed when you're fifth at the bell and all you've done is practice being in the lead. you thought about being in the lead. You think that's what's going to happen, but guess what? There's only so much you can control in an athletic event. You can control yourself. You can't control the bloke who, for whatever reason, has just gone out like a lunatic and all of a sudden he's run the fastest 400 he's ever run in his life and he's in front of you. Like, yeah. you can't control on a, in, a, in a game of footy the fact that it starts pissing down rain and all of a sudden you didn't expect it to be a wet game and it's just like, well, I don't want a wet game today. Well, bad luck. That's what you've got. Yeah. How are you going to deal with it? Because that's what happens in sport. And there's a, there's a great, and Michael Phelps, there's a beautiful video of Michael Phelps. And he talks about preparing for worst case scenarios. So Michael Phelps is probably the greatest ever swimmer of all time. He talks yep. in this documentary about preparing for worst case scenarios. So preparing, and the worst case scenario probably for a swimmer, one of them is you dive in and your goggles fill up with water. So he said, I visualized diving in, my goggles filled up with water. What am I going to do? I couldn't see a bloody thing. So I don't know where the wall is. I don't know how many. So he goes, I, I visualized how many strokes down the pool over 50 meters. So I knew it was this number of strokes. So that's what I did. And he said, in the Olympic final, I dive in, my goggles fill up full of water. So he goes, I've been there before. I was calm and I knew what I had to do because I'd done it a thousand times in my head. I just knew this is okay. 
if he hadn't done it, it's just like, oh my god, this is the Olympic Panic. final. What's yeah. going on here? So athletes it spirals always out of control. The ability to be calm mm. in a situation you don't expect, the really good operators can do that. And even because if they're not prepared, I imagine they even if they hadn't done the visualization, you reckon you'd back someone like a Phelps hit to still move on with it pretty quickly. Well, yeah, but geez, it's got to help. I mean, even if the, even if you don't yeah. visualize that action. Just the fact you visualise a challenging scenario means another challenging scenario rocks up you're not used to or you're not prepared for. It's just like, well, I'm prepared for these other ones. This is just another one. I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this challenging yeah. situation. I mean, how many games... It's like coping strategies. The games of footy, how many... You go in with a plan and guess what? The midfield all of a sudden changes what they're going to do. You go in thinking they're going to be around the stoppage. They're going to be here and all of a sudden it's exactly the opposite. It's just like, what are you going to do? You're going to shit the bed. You're going to say, well, let's look at the tape after it. It's a grand final. You say, well, mm. we need to adapt straight away we just got to work it out and even the ability for the athlete especially a footy player to work it out in the moment because it might be 25 minutes before the coach can come out and talk to you and readjust it's very hard yeah. to get a message to a group of players to get a message to 18 players very very hard to do that within a quarter yep. so and that's what Hawthorne did particularly well is they trained their players to be able to deal with scenarios right then and there they did a lot of work during the week on scenarios so that when they got in that situation under pressure they could deal with that situation really well without relying on the coach necessarily telling them what to do all the time. Coach yourself. Oh, you have to. Oh, you have yeah. to. The coaches are there. They're a facilitator. They're important. I mean, I'm, I remember Sam Mitchell, Hawthorne player, was a great example of a player. He would hit me up every day. And, and, and even a guy who's very similar, Kane Corns, played for Port Adelaide. These guys would, in the early in their career would hit me up every single day. How can I get better? What can I do? What do you think about this? How about that? What does this mean? What does that mean? Sam Mitchell in mm-hmm. the last three or four years career hardly spoke to me outside of around technical stuff which is how you going mate how are you he he basically worked it out himself that i was just a resource there to use every now and then when he needed but basically he worked it out so that's that's ultimately what you want to get to is these athletes become self-sufficient and then they just use you you know you've done a good job as a resource when yeah. they don't rely on you they're relying on you you're not doing a good job you're not a good coach if they're relying mm. on you all the time for the answers. Yeah, that's such a good message. There'll be definitely some, some coaches watching this. So, it's, yeah, there's no point if they're dependent on you, is it? Like you've got to... Well, yeah, what it does is it makes you feel really good about yourself. Like early yeah. on, these guys want to know what I think and they're asking me for advice and how good is this. And then I got to the point, it's just like, shit, I'm not doing a good job at all here because they can't think for themselves. So yeah. that's where a lot of the psychology stuff came into me. It's just like, I've got to get these sides to think. I can't give them the answers all the time. I actually want them to come up with answers. So I changed my approach. A lot of questioning. One of the biggest things I do in my day is I don't tell, I ask. I ask questions. I ask open-ended questions to the athlete and then I just see where it goes because all the athletes have got a view, they've got an agenda, they've got a feeling, they've got strong views on where, they, where they're at and why they're there. You've got to get them to talk because it still fascinates me. It still fascinates me even in this environment and I'm dealing with this now, the amount of players that won't actually tell you what they think until you ask them a question mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they'll tell you everything. But if you don't ask anything, they won't say it. So now you need to have a, you know, they need to feel safe. They need to feel like you'll listen. They need to feel like they're not threatened. and They need to feel like they can trust you, that you won't then give that information off to someone else necessarily. But yeah. I, I would say that I've asked 80% of my role in the last 20 years has been asking questions and 20% has been telling and giving advice. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. It's, I guess that gives you, your advice then is well-informed, isn't it, by the time you get that you give it, you've got all the info, all the intel that you need. You want to play the long game. Like if you're in an environment, if you're the one that's coming up with all the answers, if you're the one that seems to know everything, people might like that to start with, but then people get sick of that pretty quickly. And innately they think this guy thinks he knows everything. He's got all the answers all the time, whether he's right or wrong. And 
people start to switch off from you. So you've actually got to play the game. You've got to be really balanced about how much advice, when you give the advice. Dominating an environment that you're in is not what you should do. There are times when you need to step in and, and take a leadership role and take responsibility and drive things hard. But if all you're doing is driving things hard all the time and you're on the rivet and they're on the rivet the whole time, then you won't last the distance. And, and that's what high performance is about, lasting the distance with a group of people. Athletes take so long to develop. They really do take a long time to develop physically, psychologically to the point where they're elite. And you want consistency. They want consistency around them. They want consistency in messaging. They want consistent people around them. They don't like change. People don't like change. That is very stressful for people when there's lots of change. So and you need to be calm and you need to keep educating and you need to listen a lot. Is there an example of that for for coaches listening, staff listening? Let's say an athlete, like you said, Sam Mitchell, would message you every day asking questions. Would you text him straight back? Would you say, let's catch up for a coffee or and then, then, then and there you'd be asking the questions or is it just a bit of a back and forth no matter what the format in person over a text? You, you're asking them questions on that topic, let's say. Sounds like I really want to work on my improving my sleep quality. Yeah, it could be. A lot of the time, it's a, it might be a text to get started with, and then it's a mate coming and see me this afternoon. Let's follow up on it. Oh, let's follow up first thing tomorrow morning. So, face to face is always better. Yeah. I don't like doing it on the phone as much. So even if I do it on the phone, I might just start the conversation on the phone and then say, let's do it tomorrow. Let's catch up and go through it because it's much more powerful. Because again. I want to see their body language. I want to get a feel for their facial for their facial features. Are they into this? Are they not? I could be telling them something and then they're just not with me. And so then I can mm. say, mate, I know you've asked me for this a bit of advice, but for whatever reason, you seem to be off on another page. Let's do it tomorrow. Are you worried about anything? Are you not listening? Are you not understanding? So it's not just about the tell. It's, it's, it's talking to them and actually getting a level of understanding. So then it's like, well, what do you reckon, mate? How do you reckon that fits in for you? Yeah, and they go, yeah, that's fair enough. I reckon I need to do this. I reckon that's not good in my preparation. I reckon that bit I can take, that bit I can't. Like, Even when I'm giving advice, I'm listening more than I'm giving because I'll yeah. give a bit, I'll set the scene, I'll give them, and then I want to see how they've interpreted that and how they can fit that into their life because how I fit into my life is different to how they fit into their life. And so many people, when they give advice, they give advice based on their personal perspective. So there's, mm. there's some really good stuff out there around that. But basically, when we talk to people, all we do is tell our story, our life story, and try and put on to others that that's how their story should be. Whereas really all we're doing, we should be saying, well, this is my experience. This is what I felt. This is what's happened. These are all these different experiences I've had. How does that fit? Does it fit in? Does it not? Try this, try that. There's so many different ways. To get yeah, if you get them bought into it, then they're going to be more engaged, aren't they? If, they've worked it, if you've sort of helped them to get there themselves and get to the realisation of what they need to do and they've been part of that, I imagine you're going to be more motivated to actually put it to action. Well, yeah. I mean, if they've come up with it or feel like they've half come up with it, they're a much better chance of implementing it and that becoming a habit because they have an emotional connection to that. They feel like they're the ones that have half come up with it and whenever you feel like you're part of that and you've come, you, your, your level of commitment, emotional commitment to that will be higher. Mm. It's never as high you just tell and they just cop it in the face and they don't feel part of it they won't have the same level of commitment so that's from that perspective and that's how it works yeah and, and from a cultural point of view whether it be leading managing your performance team and also players coaches the whole cohort what are some important things when you when you go into a new club that you that you personally focus on yeah well i think there's a couple of things you have to provide an environment that they feel safe in and 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 again there is a lot out on that the athletes have to feel safe but the but the support staff and the people you're working with have to feel safe. So again, this whole, you're doing it my way is not the way yeah. to go. It's the education piece, as in this is how I see it, this is how I view it, what do you think, what are you going to bring to the table? 
So the alignment of philosophy, basically, and I'm still on that process now. We've had, we've got two new physios four months ago. We've got a physio that's been there 18 months. I'm just over two years into it. We've got strength and conditioning guys that have been part of the program, but have now got different roles. Steve Patrol and Matt Bode. We've got a new group of people. So at Hawthorne, we had you know the same doctor, same physio, me. We had two footy managers. Luke Boyd was there for a long time. Peter Burge before that's now at Richmond was there for a long time. Phil Merriman was there for a long time. We had a very, you know, now Fremantle. We had a really stable group of people who had, I don't know exactly how, but we had this sense of aligned philosophy. I don't even know whose it was, where it came from, but it ended up being our philosophy, the way we trained. So now mm-hmm. I've got all these new different people, you know, working with it, that we're working on this alignment of philosophy right now. And it's subtle and it's, it takes a lot of work, a lot of education, a lot of one-on-one stuff, some group messaging, but the group messaging isn't that powerful. The powerful stuff is the informal one-on-one stuff that you have. Yep. So the alignment for the alignment of philosophy, you've got it that you want them to, um, to feel safe. They don't want to feel threatened. They want to know that their job is secure. They want to know that they're valued. That doesn't mean you don't challenge them, but you're part of something greater than yourself because we all want to be part of something yep. greater than yourself. What are they there to purpose? Where do they want to go in their career? This feeling that I want to help people. I want to help people grow. I want to help people then flourish and go into their own environment and do their own thing and do great things. I get a lot of joy out of people that I've worked with going on and now there's there's four guys that have worked with me now running AFL programs. It gives me a lot of joy to see to see that. Nothing better is there than helping people achieve their dreams and goals and just having a crack. Yeah. And you mentioned yeah that alignment of philosophy. does that like did was there a philosophy at Essendon two thousand, Port Adelaide two thousand two, Hawthorne during your long stint there and then now Carlton like is is there is there a different philosophy depending on the people that you have involved with it or is there a performance philosophy that there's like a framework you sort of work towards? Uh, good question. For me, I have a philosophy, but I work with the coach really closely on what his philosophy is and aligning it. So Port Adelaide, I went in there and Choco and Phil Walsh said, all right, what do you want to do? And we'll support that. And so yeah. this is what I want to do. And they said, okay, let's let's have a crack. Yeah. And said, if it doesn't I, work, basically. I actually had an interview with Mark Williams for the, for the Werribee gig just, and he mentioned, yeah, do you run? Because I know one of the best high points coaches Andrew Russell would run with the players and that was bloody impressive. <laughs> he was pretty pumped up about it, actually. And I said, I'm yeah. no Andrew Russell, but I can try. I can definitely run I'm if you need me to. I'm slowing down. These, I'm still trying. Yeah, no, he was, he was big into that, Chuck. But, yeah. So, Is that so something you – do you think that helps with buying with coaches? You, you showing that you no can doubt. do it? No doubt. The single biggest strength of mine to start with was the fact that I could run. Now, at that stage, I could run better than just about all the players just because yeah. I came from that background. Typically, they were quicker than me and all that. But I got a very, I got a really good bit of advice from Rob Snowden, who was the footy manager who got me across from Essendon um, at Port Adelaide. He said, all I want you to do is jump into bed with the players. I want you to coach them. I want you to push them. I want you to love them. I want you to challenge them. I don't want you to worry about politics. I don't want you to worry about what the board thinks. I don't want you to worry about going to coaches' meetings. I don't want you to worry about any of that. Just be with the players all day, all day. Yeah. And... I did that better. I did it better back then than I do it now. I did it better than ever back then because there was a lack of resources and stuff, so I had to. But I just got to know those boys, and I was in the gym with them. Um, I didn't always train with them because the work wasn't really relevant. Sometimes I'd train them, sometimes I wouldn't. I do a lot of extra work with the rehab guys. I was always showing, and I was just always there. I was always there and always. When you're making that decision, what are you basing it on? Do you read the room and just be like, I can see that player needs me. They're in rehab. They're by themselves. They need. They need a mate, or is it? Is there other things that you? you like, how do you make that decision that I'm jumping in, opposed uh, to coaching from afar? It's listening to people in the organisation. So I get a lot of feedback through players, coaches, 
strength and conditioning stuff about how their players travelling. So there might be, they say Jack, say Jack, if he's struggling a bit, I reckon he's lost a bit of motivation and it's just like, and then I look for it and I go, yeah, I can see that. And then without him even knowing, I'll just jump in with him. I won't say, mate, yeah. uh, I feel you're losing motivation. How about I do a session with mm. you? It's just like, just do it. Don't talk about it. Yeah. Just get in there. So a big part of my role and a big part of anyone's role in, in a high performance, if you're in the, if you're sort of the middleman like we are in our roles, you need to be listening to what the organisation is telling you because there's information everywhere. So your ability to just get information from here, there and everywhere and then absorb it, listen and be smart with it, with that information. So, But sometimes I'll just see it and I'll just jump in and sometimes I won't even know what I'm doing. It's just like I just feel like jumping in with this guy or this group of guys for no other reason than let's just jump in. Yeah, yeah. Here and with all that information. Yeah, it's not just logic. It's also just going with the moment and jumping yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With, with, with the information that you said, being the middleman, do you journal stuff at the end of the day or is it a matter of you just through practice you've been able to filter the important stuff and sort of get rid of the stuff that's not relevant? I imagine there's, there's those conversations you're having throughout the whole day. How do you down what are your, your, your important things to spend time on and things that are less in prioritise? You should see my whiteboard. My whiteboard and my notes and my phone on my notes – are an absolute shit fight. Like, it just looks... Yeah. You walk in and you think, oh, my God, what is going on in that bloke's brain? Like, there's just shit everywhere all over the board. There's no... It's random. It's So that's just my way. My way is, oh, shit, I've got to remember that. Bang. If, I've, if I'm in my office, I'll write on the whiteboard. If I'm at home, I'll write it in the book. If I've got nothing, I'll put it in my notes on my phone. So in the end, I, I have stuff going everywhere, which is not a great system, but it's just what works for me. So I pretty much know that whatever I've got to do, I'm either in my notes on my phone, my notes in the notebook or my whiteboard, and I just keep swinging between those three and keep reminding me of yeah. what I did, what happened, what strategy. So it's a bit it's a bit structured, a bit random, but, but I write lots of notes. I keep all my notes. I go back and reflect on them all the time. I've still got stuff from 1998 sitting in my office, and every now and then from Essendon, I just go and look at it and... Really? I'll, and a lot of my notes are written, so I'll have just the session plan. I'll have what the session is all typed out and everything, and then I just write notes, written notes. And the written From the set, live in the session, like yeah, a field session, you're writing notes. I also, do session, yeah. I also do it more broader, generally, the, the, the overall group. I'll, I'll do it in a document that we have. But more individual stuff or little intricate details, I'll write it down. And that writing it down, I can remember writing it down. I can remember emotionally where I was at when I'd write it down and I just connect with it straight away. So the writing it down, and again, a bit of research on writing things down versus typing them, you have a greater emotional connection with it and yeah, you'll be yeah. able to recall that information better if you write it down. And it's handwritten, isn't it? Like the computer doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't have the same effect. Now, it's still powerful and, we, and I've still got an element of that that I do, but I love the written, I love the written stuff. Yeah, good. I, I mean, I write as well. I do write notes on my phone, but I, I definitely find, yeah, writing it down, I agree with the research. It's You just do remember it better. I guess it's more kinesthetic or I don't know. It makes sense though, doesn't it? It's more, it's more, more involved than a keypad. These next couple of questions are actually from John Quinn. He was on the podcast a few days ago and I messaged him after it. He, yeah, he's on. Yep. Not, not now, sorry. No, but he, I interviewed him a little while ago. And yeah. he sent through a photo of you guys winning the, the 2000 Premiership, actually. You holding the cup. And there was Bruce Connor in there. And anyway, I asked him, I said, oh, what questions would you ask? Jack, he's coming on this Saturday, actually. So he's, he wrote me three. They're, they're the best questions, I reckon, better than mine. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, so his first one was, you've been at the top of your game for many years. What do you do to develop your knowledge and how do you find new methods? Yeah, that's a good question. I've really struggled with this over the years to find both somewhere that has really got strong resource and, and giving other people advice on where to find it. I find it really challenging. I basically, I read a lot. So 
I read a lot of books. I read a lot of research. And people who know me often say that I'm not a heavy research-orientated high-performance coach. I actually am. But I put the research into, into practice and I try and bring it to life. And so there is a lot of stuff that I do based on research, but I, I don't give the impression that there is, that it is. The art is more important than the science, but you have to have a pretty good understanding of the science to start with. So there's a, bit, a lot of assumed knowledge. I now think, geez, I'm, just, I'm making half this stuff up, but I'm not. There's a lot of assumed knowledge there from a lot of years of research. So a lot of reading and, and really broad, you know, really broad reading. Uh, I listen to a lot of people. I ask lots of questions. I, I pretty much will go here, there, everywhere to find out something I cannot and I've never been able to find sort of one particular source that I've found is very, yeah. very good. So that's a very broad answer, but it's basically wherever I can get it from, I'll get it from. And I might even see something on Twitter or whatever, or I'll say, oh, geez, that's interesting, and then I'll go and find out about it. I'll dive into it. But I don't, I'm not a social media man. I don't use it often at all. I don't really know what's going on in the world very much from a social media point of view, but that's just, that's just my style. Yeah, and so with that style, like, do you have, like, let's say there's a trend with the players you're working with around sleep and that's your focus. So it's like, okay, I'm going to dive in and, and call sleep experts. I'm going to read books around sleep. Like, is that how it sort of goes about it or is it more so you just have ago, a rolling? So a few years ago, the sleep stuff sort of popped up. So I completely dived into it. I read as much stuff on it as I could. I got Shona Halston involved. We got it to become a present to the players to give credibility to it. We then followed up with sleep watches with the players. That has almost like became our thing outside of playing footy for a while. Again, it's just a fantastic life habit. And now it's sort of more back and now it's sort of more in the background. Uh, and then it'll go into something and then it'll go into something else. I don't try and dive into multiple things at once. So what I do is if there's something we want to drive, I'll drive it really and almost go over the top on it. And then I'll pull that back and say, oh, boys, you should get that one by now. Because what happens if you dive into it, a topic like that, you dive into it, you educate them. Then the players start educating themselves. They start having conversations they've never had before. In the, we're in the breakfast room before, and we've got three new players that haven't travelled with us before. So one of the best parts of my job is I'm at the table here behind me. I hear our two leaders talking to these three guys about their sleep patterns over the weekend and what they should be doing, what time they should be getting up. Do they sleep during the day? How long do they sleep? What time? How long do they get up before the game? Put your alarm on. Don't oversleep. Rah, 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 rah. I'm just sitting there listening to it. And then they said, oh, yeah. go, and talk to, go and talk to Jack about it. And they're like, no, no, I think you've nailed it. Like, I've got it, I've got it under control. You guys have done it, done it for me. So I don't even need to do it. Probe those guys? Do you probe leaders to that on their um, awareness because you've set them well, up a little bit? On, or Early on I did, and now not so much. Every now and then you still do. It might be, hey, people reckon this is a good run, mate. So there's one thing me talking to the boys around overreading when we're traveling, but what's much more powerful is that Patrick Cripps or Sam Doherty gets up um, last night at dinner and says, boys, yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story about me in my early years and overreading. Like I went into a game, this is what I had. I thought it was going to work for me and I felt like absolute shit. I felt that heavy, I felt slow. Ever since then, this is what I've done with my preparation. This is how I do it. Now, it's not that they have to do it that way, but it's really just bringing the awareness of boys. Have a, I really think about overeating when we're traveling. That's far more important. So my role, I educate, I go hard, yeah. and then I pull right, and then I get everyone else basically in the organization to drive whatever it is, and I just tap into it whenever I need to. That's the art, you know, yeah, the art of influence is to take it off yourself, to get everyone else telling the story. They don't even know where the story started. They don't know who, who, who came up with it, yet they're just living and breathing it. That's the art of influence, which yeah. means you won't get a lot of credit for a lot of things, and that's okay. That's what leadership is. And the, his next one was, what are some of the biggest changes? This is from Jonkin as well, that you have seen in the past 20 years, and then the follow-on from that is, what do you see changing in the future? 
couple of big ones there. It's changed in the last 20 years, yeah. Well, firstly, I just want to go back to John in terms of psychology stuff. He he was so good with the psychology of the group and he, he, he brought to life how important it was getting inside players' heads. He was a very, very good motivator of, of people, humans. He, he, he was challenging. He loved them. He pushed their buttons. He was very, very good at it. So that he was, he, he played a huge role in my development. To say, geez, this guy's good at this. Like, I want to explore this more about what techniques is he using. And, and he was pretty challenging at times. It's just like, how does he get away being so challenging? Yet they seem to love him. Like mm. this whole that, that was that fascinated me at the start because that's what the great coaches do. They 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 love him. They make him believe, but then they also go really hard when it's required. And the athletes seem to respond unbelievably well versus. But the guy that goes hard at the athlete all the time and they're just like, oh, geez, I just don't rate this guy. Why do they rate that guy yeah. and not that guy? And it seems to be similar, but it's not. Oh, the biggest change in the last 20 years is just the number of people that you need to talk to, liaise with, to come up with a solution. 20 years ago, there was two of you or three of you. You'd work on it. You'd come up with a strategy. You'd move on. Whereas now, and it's a little bit better actually now with the reduced footy cap. I'm actually enjoying it more than ever because there's less people to get around, less staff to get around. I became a bit of a juggernaut. It's just like so many people. And I was... I was actually talking to a, I was talking to a peer of mine today and from another club and we were talking about the management of different athletes and we we're coming up we we're talking about scenarios around an injury with an athlete and basically saying that what happens now in these environments is because there's all these people with inputs what you end up doing a lot of the time is you go you do a bit of what they want to do you do a bit of what they want to do you do a bit of what they want to do you do a bit of so you feel like you're half appeasing everyone and their ideas in the end you got this hodgepodge of stuff that you're doing and you're doing a little bit of everything, yeah. a little bit of everyone's philosophies, but you're not actually doing anything well. Just like if you want to get this guy back, sometimes you actually have to say, what? I understand your philosophy, but if we do, if we get the guy back from a sleeve strain uh, and we do uh, heavy calf raises, we do hill running, we do sled pushes, we do dynamic calf pulses, we do sprint work, we do all this stuff, and then we wonder why they break down again because yeah. we're doing all good. It's all good stuff, but which stuff actually matters and which stuff is fluff? Which stuff is just adding mm. to the noise and adding to the fatigue? And then a guy hurts his soleus again. It's just like, no wonder if you had a guy with a, you'd never done his soleus in his life before, he would break down if you're doing that much soleus work with him, non-specific soleus work. So, yeah, just bringing everyone on the same page and actually saying, no, what, this is what we're doing. The ability to pull it all together. And where's it going? Uh, I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the basic philosophy is the same. It hasn't changed much. It really hasn't. I know everyone thinks it has. It hasn't. The physiology hasn't changed. The human mind hasn't changed. The game's a bit different. It's definitely different. But so yeah, we change training philosophies and the way we train them and the way that we're out on the pitch and all that sort of stuff. So there's there's lots of different. But the fundamentals remain the same. They're absolutely the same. And the main thing is knowing your game. Whatever you're preparing for, you've got to know your game. As in, so what are you actually preparing for? And that's your start point. And understand that that's what you've got to condition them to. So if your game is soccer, it's a certain length, certain duration, certain rest periods. AFL footy is something different. Middle distance runner is something completely different. Specificity is everything. You need to condition them for the forces, the number of efforts, the length of the game. You need to know what you are conditioning your athlete for. That's really, really, really important. And there are, and we need to do stuff around it. There is peripheral stuff we need to do. What is the peripheral stuff you need to do around the specificity? Stuff. They're throwing a lot. Yeah, yeah. it was cutting out a little bit there. That's better. There's a lot of people doing a lot of good stuff. But what really matters? You know, what really matters and what doesn't mm. matter so much? Where's the where, you know where's the pieces of gold and where's the fluff? And then last one, what would you be doing if you weren't in the AFL? Balcony in Queensland somewhere? No, I'd be I would I'd be training middle distance athletes. So my absolute yeah. passion is middle distance athlete. My son Finn is you know, becoming a pretty good middle distance runner. 
I've coached guys that have guys in the past that have been good runners. See James Hansen might be on there. I don't know if you're watching James. I saw you there before, mate. G'day, how are you? A few years ago, we worked worked together. So yeah, I would love to have. I'd be. I'd have. I'd pull together a group of middle distance athletes and have a crack in that space, and and yeah. ideally travel the world with a group of middle distance athletes. Middle distance running in Australia is is very very strong right now. It's building. It's pretty exciting actually for those that are not into it. It's actually the best depth we've had. There's a lot of good juniors coming through. It's a pretty exciting time. Yeah, John was saying the same thing. So that, would that be your own business that you would consult these guys, or would that be you'd be hired full time by a? No, I think it'd be my own business. Uh, I mean, but I think I'd probably just do my own thing. I probably had enough of uh, working for someone else. Just do it. Yeah, fair enough. Very good. Yeah. You there? Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'll, you've been on for an hour, mate, so I'm aware of your time, but I'll, there's two questions that have just come through from those watching. Hugh Mason's written through, a bit of advice for a young performance coach wanting to work in the AFL system. Well, first of all, you need to you need to dive in and get involved in any environment you can. So whether that's a club football team, a state football team, a VFL team, just get your hands dirty with a group of players. It doesn't really matter the level because you need to start exploring and playing around with your philosophies. So human beings are human beings and it really doesn't matter what level they are. Whatever group of people you work with, you want to make that group better. Regardless of their age, how good they are at footy, we can be we can make them better physically and we can make them stronger psychologically. So just get to get your hands dirty with a group. Then then obviously try and get into a VFL, a VFL system, show that you have real passion. Unfortunately in this you have to be prepared to do something for nothing. I did a lot for nothing. I travelled I travelled far and wide and didn't expect a cent for years. I got paid $8,000 in my first year full-time and I just had to scrap and fight. And have, I was working five jobs. One time I was I was at uni in Ballarat. I was working in Melbourne. I was trying to train, do 120 k's a week running. Uh, no wonder I didn't. I was no good at running. I didn't have any energy, but it produced on the track at all given what I was doing, but it worked for my career. So you've just got to, you've got to learn off. You're not anyone. You've got to learn off good operators. You've got to learn off operators that aren't so good. Often your greatest learning is watching the people that don't go so well. It's just like, well, why is this environment not working? And again, you keep that to yourself. You don't You don't tell them that you think better. You don't tell them you've got all the answers. You just observe. And one bit of advice is basically observe, observe, observe until you're asked a question. Don't start telling people what you Don't start telling people how good you are. Don't start telling people you've got all this expertise. Basically, just jump in there and buy to be involved to get involved at any level and do any job is the way to go and it's just how life is. If you expect to be getting good money, getting lots of credibility and all that sort of stuff, none of us ever had it from the start. Not one of us. We had to work our absolute ass off and just do a lot of hard yards. That's no different to the athlete who becomes a great athlete. All the great athletes scrap and fight and train hard. None of them are born freaks that are just so more talented than anyone else. Maybe just they become these freaky athletes. The really, really good athletes are the ones that have got talent and they work their ass off. They do both. That's what you've got to do. you got to work bloody yeah. hard. Yeah, similar. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, Luke wrote through a very similar question. So what advice would you give who's, for those wanting to get into high-performance coaching? So I reckon you've covered that. Last one's from the Tasmanian Strength and Conditioning Association. It's on mental skills. So at elite, at elite level, what percentage of training time is allocated to mental skills and do you do any outsourced training in this area? Just I just missed the last bit, but... Mental skills training, uh, it's the most challenging part of the role. Yeah, the most challenging part of any is the mental skills and how often And I find. So what we do is we have an element in there every week within our program, sometimes two formal elements within our week that we do it. But we're always, so what, what we do is we're always bringing to life whatever concept we're working on, we bring to life out on the training track. So during a, during a drill, at the end of a drill, we'll often bring up that element we're working on in front of the group. 
That was really good, guys. If you missed the end of or the la- any part of that conversation with Andrew Russell, also known as Jack, um, you'll be able to watch the IGTV, the full recording on my Instagram. And we'll also post the audio to YouTube, iTunes and Spotify. There's plenty of awesome experiences, stories and how Jack goes about everything that he does at, at high points level. So make sure you watch this one. That was an yeah, unbelievable episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and show your support by following us on Instagram as well as our subscribing to iTunes, Spotify and YouTube. Thanks, guys.